Welcome to a special edition of Bound Off. We'll be releasing our next literary audio broadcast of short stories on April 15th. Today we're releasing two bonus podcasts that celebrate the life of poet Robert Dana, who died on February 6, 2010, at 80. We recorded this hour-long reading of his poetry at the University of Iowa on March 27th. We're also releasing a separate recording of his March 28th memorial service. The Boundoff staff met R.P. Dana just two years ago, right after we attended the 2008 AWP conference in New York. Derek Alger, editor of Piff Magazine, graciously introduced us to the legendary poet who is living practically right around the corner from us in Coralville, Iowa. We met for coffee, and he agreed right away to allow us to record him reading his work for our podcast. What struck us was his enthusiasm for the new technology we were using and his sincere willingness to be a part of our humble effort. We feel so fortunate to have known him. He was the real deal, and we hope you enjoy these remembrances and readings of the wonderful work he left behind. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is, is Rick Ryan. Um, the last time I saw many of you, we were going out to dinner, or we were sitting down for breakfast, or we were exchanging gossip, are laughing, and we were on our way to meet Robert Dana for a drink and some joyous conversation. Back then, we weren't moping around. I, for one, would frankly rather not be here at all. Thinking about the death of Robert Dana is actually almost too much for me. One of the last times I spoke with him, I started sobbing. I don't know what to do, I said. Take a deep breath, was his reply. <laughs> good advice then, good advice now. I think we all need to take a deep breath and remember that we're here to savor the memory of a great spirit who sat with us at dinner, at breakfast, exchanging gossip, laughing, reading poems to us. Our work this evening is to bring the joy of Robert Dana back into the room. I smile when I think of how I first heard so many of his poems. Ryan, he'd say to me on the telephone, I've got another one of those scattershot poems. <laughs> well, Dana, this evening, we've got a scattershot of a whole bunch of poems here. We've got a whole goddamn room full of poems. <laughs> From that wonderful new and selected book you left behind as you stepped out of the world. Thanks, man for those etching sharp images you left us. And thanks too to Peg Dana for putting together all of us to read these poems in all our different voices. And maybe, just maybe, if we get things right, as you've instructed us, noun verb, noun verb, <laughs> maybe, just maybe, we'll make our own poem out of your work and leave here with a smile on our faces and your spirit in our hearts. Maybe, just maybe, we'll have you here with us, enjoying yourself among so many of your friends, though a little critical, too, saying, Ryan, let's get started. <laughs> so here goes. My job, aside from testing the microphone level, it was so sweet somebody asked me uh, about being in charge of something, I'm not in charge of anything. Anyway, my job, aside from testing the microphone level, is getting us underway. 
The first reader, Marvin, will come up, introduce himself, read, and one by one, we'll introduce ourselves and read from Robert's new and selected poems and from this book, which will be left up here. Uh, the microphone is here and probably should be clipped at about this level. Um, you readers, once you get up here, you're on your own. I can't help you. <laughs> and our goal tonight is maybe, just maybe, we'll get the wonderful contraption of Robert Dana's poetry flying once more. I don't think I need the mic, do I? Okay. Yes? Oh. How's that? Does that work? Uh, I'm Marvin Bell. I'm going to be uh, followed by Rick Campbell. Um, I can't remember anymore, Arden and I were talking about it a moment ago, whether I first met Bob in 1961 when I came to Iowa City to be a graduate student bum in the uh, writer's workshop or whether I met him later than that. I'm pretty sure I met him that early because I believe we were corresponding while I was in the Army in 1964 and 65. I had written a poem about a dream, and I thought it was about a nightmare, and he said, no, no, it's not about that. It's about crawling the combat infiltration course. And so I rewrote the poem according to what he had told me. <laughs> he, uh, was, he was at Cornell College, and I used to go up there a lot when I first came back here to teach. He was also printing the Hillside Press. Anybody remember the Hillside Press? It, it produced beautiful pamphlets and broadsides. Uh, Bob did a pamphlet of a couple of longish poems of mine. It's quite beautiful. Uh, later on, he, uh, as you know, he restarted the North American Review and had to get permission from Senator Claiborne Pell to use that name. We're going to figure this out, right? <laughs> and uh, there we go. Pick it up. Uh, and uh, I edited poetry for him for five years. He did a wonderful thing with that magazine. As you'll know, it was at that time, it was actually uh, a bi-monthly, believe it or not. It came out every other month. This is a poem called Summer in a Small Town. It's the 19th in a sequence of poems that made up a book that was published in 1980 called In a Fugitive Season, a Sequence of Poems. This is number 19. Peg Dana said that she's especially partial to the last lines of it, the last clo the closing lines, which he feels sum up a lot about Bob and his view of himself. So this is number 19 from that book. The small towns of the strange middle of our lives remain small. Streets wintry even in summer. Here the old forget themselves in their own stories. The moon rises, the town's tower lifts its silver planet of water into the sky. And the children believe in God and the cold gardens of his weather. What makes of such poor wisdom the knife of the will, of such poverty the flower without memory, we do not know. Tonight, men wire their bodies to grenades. Jets sizzle blind from the decks of carriers. In the streets, something dies. If our heads flamed here once, if together we rolled and the sun rolled like a pride of lions through the summer grass and our teeth clicked with a fever, it was another world where the day was called by your name and mine 
and love was another name for sight. Now the cat stirs beside me in the deep hair of its sleep, and my envy stirs that last of my rights, even that frail mania, too far arrived to go back. I see that I am what I always was, that ordinary man on his front steps, bewildered under the bright mess of the heavens by the fierce, indecipherable language of its stars. I'm Rick Campbell, the um, director of Van Hinger Press. So we've we've done Robert's last um, last four books, and I, I don't want to. I have to. I have to do like four pinch hitting roles. I'm also here as Steve Corey, which I kind of like being Steve Corey because it means for once I might have a chance to get my poem accepted into the Georgia Review. <laughs> 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 it probably won't work either. I've tried every other way other than being Steve. You know. But I also, I'm, I'm here uh, to say just like two lines for three other absent people. Um, the first is Lynn Knight, who, who um, makes the Anhinga books. I get like all the stupid credit for doing this, and all I try to do is be charming and have people like us. But Lynn Knight makes these books, and she makes them beautifully, and she was very um, sad that she can't be here. And in her note to me, she called Robert her um, fellow perfectionist. I mean, Robert was the toughest poet Lynn had to work with, but the only tough one she never resented working with, because she knew that he knew what he was doing and the combination. What came from this um, was going to be something, but you should have seen them fighting over his fat poems. <laughs> yeah, Robert, they don't fit on the page. Robert go, well, make the page bigger. <laughs> that was the beginning of that. <clears throat> and then my other pinch-hitting role, one is for um, Don Caswell, an old friend of mine who became um, Robert's friend. And After some memorable night in Miami at the Miami Book Fair, um, Robert has always referred to him as the Caz. <laughs> so something happened in Miami, I don't know what it was. And uh, another old good friend of mine, Guy Labita, who had the... Uh, privilege of driving Robert all around Utah on a tour. And if, <laughs> if you drive Utah, you know you got a lot of time to talk to somebody. <laughs> so each of those folks wanted me to say hi. And my official capacity tonight is to be Steve Corey, Stephen Corey. Um, you know, Robert has a lot of names, by the way. Some of us know him as RP, some as Bob, some as Robert. And um, Steve and Stephen Corey, that same thing goes on. I, Somebody calls him Stephen Corey. I'm like, who are you talking about? Because I only know him as Steve Corey. But, but anyway, he wanted to be here, of course, and his daughter was um, doing an internship in Africa, and she was in a car crash and broke her leg very badly, and Steve had to go to Africa, and he, he couldn't get back in time. So he um, sent this little note for me to say, and then I'm going to read the poem he selected. And fittingly, um, he selected probably what I would have selected if I were selecting, so I'm very happy to read that. But um, 
And also the other thing about Steve introduced me to Robert, so there's this big connection. Steve and I have known each other since 1978 in Gainesville, where and Robert was in Gainesville and I missed him. And then in Pittsburgh, Steve introduced me to, to Robert, and I just started directing at Hinger Press, and we're at dinner. Robert says, oh, I have a book. You want to publish it? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, which violated every code of the Anhinga Press uh, editorial board, of which everybody is supposed to have a say, but I don't give them one. <laughs> so I went back home and said, hey, I just said I'd publish Robert Dana's book. But I asked Steve afterwards, I said, can I do this? He goes, what? He says, Am I, do I know enough to publish Robert Dana? He goes, well, if you don't now, you will. <laughs> and um, so I think, you know, a, a lot of what I am in, in many ways, um, I owe it, in a sense, Steve and Robert, so I'm very pleased. Steve sent this little note from Tanzania. In the spring of 1976, when I met and took a writing workshop with Robert Dana at the University of Florida, he gave me what remains my single most important gift in that realm of my life. He convinced me that my innocent and perhaps arrogant sense that I was a real writer was valid. Over the next three plus decades, Bob and I remained professional colleagues and became good friends. I told him more than once that he was a hero of mine, and the reason that is not sappy is that it is true. And I'm, I'm echoing that, um, that Robert's being a hero of mine as well. And um, Steve wanted to read Horses from In a Fugitive Season. Horses. Horses of earth, horses of water, great horses of gray cloud, a blizzard of horses, dust and the ponies of dust, horses of muscle and blood, chestnuts, roans, blacks, palominos, wild dapple of Appaloosas, Spanish ponies, cow ponies, Bronx, Mustangs, Arabians, Morgans, Tennessee Walkers, Trotters, Shetlands, massive matched Percherons. Horses and the names of horses, Whirl Away, Man of War, Coal Town, Cannonero, Foolish Pleasure, Horses with Tales of Smoke, The Giddy Laughter of Horses, Horses of War, Their Necks Clothed in Thunder, Nostrils Wide, The Ground Beneath Them Terrible to Look On, Horses of Anger, Horses of Cruelty, Ringing the Iron Bit in Their Mouths, The Horses of Psyche, Blake's Horses, the horses of instruction, horses of breath, dawn horses, and the one horse in the heart that runs and runs. We very gently pass the microphone. Forgive me for uh, just reading this because it might be a lot better than my being impromptu. Um, I first met Robert Dean in 1986 at Wendover Press in the English Philosophy Building on the Iowa campus. He was talking to a mutual acquaintance of ours, Kim Merker, about the, a small edition Kim was printing of R.P.'s poems. Having worked for Kim Merker and Kay Amert, I was very interested in fine printing. My wife Penny worked for Bill Anthony the conservator and binder in the main library who would be binding the edition of 200 copies. I wanted one. And when the edition was finished in 1997, 
I bought my first volume of Robert Dana's poems titled Blood Harvest. It seemed fitting all these years later that my introduction to RP's work was handset in spectrum type, hand printed with a Vandercook proof press on Reeves paper, and hand bound by a master Irish bookbinder, my wife, with my wife helping to sew the spine. I knew that the poems deserved close reading and attention to their fine arrangements and craft and art. And ever since book after book, I have been a fan of Robert Dana's poems, as well as a fan of Robert Dana himself. I have been eager to attend his readings all these years, was honored to be on the committee that nominated him as Iowa's second poet laureate, an easy choice, and fortunate to host him a few years ago at Mount Mercy College, where he read with generosity and spirit. Sitting in the audience with my students, I realized that how many years of insight and wisdom and passion he was sharing a master of the podium as well. And at the same time, I realized how fresh and accomplished his new poems sounded as crafted and artful still as those I first read in Blood Harvest. I miss him and hearing his voice, but I have his books and his poems in mind, one of which is the poem I, I'm pleased to read this evening. It's the first poem in Blood Harvest and would become the title poem for his collection, Starting Out for the Difficult World, published in 1987 by Harper and Rowe and nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 1988. Starting out for the difficult world. This morning, once again, I see young girls with their books and clarinets starting out for the difficult world. The wind has turned into the north, it picks a few leaves from the trees, leaves already curled, some brown. They scatter. Even so, their circles under maple and hackberry thicken, the light clean as juice to the taste. Great art, someone said, rides on the backs of the poor. Perhaps that's so, but this is not Long Island. No packed white waves leap yelping on the shore. Here the nights are cold and starry, Three solitary clouds pig along the near horizon. And you could mistake this autumn for Keats, or your own, or the autumn of someone you once knew. I met Robert Dana in fall of 1982 when I was a 22-year-old graduate student at Wichita State University, and we were a motley crew that ended up at, at this uh, kind of growing uh, graduate program. Um, and Robert put us into this, shaped us into this group, uh, which he called Ro uh, Dana's Cockroaches. And we, of course, got t-shirts that said Dana's Cockroaches on them. Um, I don't have mine anymore, and I probably wouldn't have been able to wear it this evening anyway, <laughs> if it still fit me. Um, but we met in his apartment um, and had these intense, intense discussions. It would take him an hour and a half to critique one poem. Um, and I did end up in tears on the balcony the first time they did mine. Uh, but he taught me how to look at poems with care. Um, he taught me how to buy a case of wine and, and drink wine well. He taught me how to eat oysters. 
Um, he taught me many, many things. But I'm honored tonight to get to eat, to read to you To a Cockroach, which has eating in it as well. My cockroach, my companion, there is no easy way. I've seen you drowned in refrigerator butter. In New York, in one April, touching a kitchen switch, I flicked ordinary night into delirium. All your old varieties dizzying the wall above the pitch and spill of moldering dishes. Hysteria of survival riding the light. It comes on us suddenly, too quick to be cold. I loved a girl once who slammed you dead by half dozens night after night in a St. Louis railroad flat, her big box of Ohio blue tips making the cheap silver jump and ring. Jesus, she was beautiful. <laughs> but you're the perfect survivor, 25 million years of humility. Let's hear it, teeny jewels of typhoid, for quickness, aliases, shiner, steamfly, periplaneta americana. La cucaracha, la cucaracha, ya no puedo caminar, drunker than artillery. That girl I loved, I married. And this morning, the wind lazy in the window shears, sheets rich with the colors of privilege, coupled jet fighters from a nearby airbase, sucking everything up, every word into God's roaring void. I'm giddy. Cockroach, companion, yours is the life that lasts, the durable low babble, your eyes quick and dark, mine, slow and blue. David Hamilton is the next week. matter of attaching it to your lapel or something, it's seeing your lapel <laughs> with these glasses that one is forced to wear at certain ages that we seem to arrive at, Bob being the explorer of them before the rest of us. Don't miss in this book, please, the photograph on the dust jacket which is apparently Bob's. Quite beautiful. Uh, or <coughs> the one on the inside back cover of Bob again. Lovely, friendly photograph. Bob with his best look. I seem always to remember him at readings in a blue blazer and a red shirt. Usually a red polo shirt often with a collar. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered where he got that thought of fashion from. Uh, something from our youth, but he carried it forward. It seems like we choose to read poems close to the era from when we met him, at least so far that is the case. I came on the scene a little later than many of the people here, 
and didn't meet Bob until the mid-1980s, although I'd been in Iowa City for about 10 years. Uh, maybe I met him, but I don't recall any particular time before then. And then the poem that I'm listed to read here came out in the New Yorker. And I knew just enough about him to look at that poem and read it and admire it and say, how did that New England boy know so much about the Middle West? I thought he got it just right. It was 1985 or 6 when I saw that poem. And about that time, I was doing a special issue of the Iowa Review. He and I were companion editors for a short time, or put it this way. He, in a sense, introduced me to it because when the Iowa Review came my way, I kept hearing stories of North American <coughs> Review up the road and how that might have become sort of the Iowa Review here, but other things happened instead. Anyway, I was doing a special issue to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Writer's Workshop. And three of Bob's poems came out in that issue. And they came to me shortly after seeing the poem in the New Yorker. And that poem in the New Yorker cemented in some way my reaction to the poems that came. And I'm actually going to read the first one of those rather than the one from the New Yorker, which if you have the book is only a page beyond it. But this was, uh, this is where Bob really hit me hard, quickly. And so he easily earned my special regard whenever he came my way again. And he had that delicate way of being present but not imposing himself. Every few years he would show me some more poems and it soon became inevitable that I would take one or more of them. Once I uh, dared to suggest that he cut something from a poem. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, you mean you don't like that? And I said, uh, well, you can try it my way. And if you prefer it yours, you can put it in the book your way. And he said, oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and I don't think I made that suggestion the next time around. <laughs> But this is on page 113, if you have the text, and it's called Everything Else You Can Get, You Take. Another portrait of the Middle West. I'm a Midwestern boy. He wasn't. He's the one who nailed it. It's that kind of day. Hay and panic grass combed into rolling windrows. Minstrel-faced sheep a few head of crossbred Charlies. No place we ever imagined we'd be. No sea's edge where a low wave sputters, ignites like a fuse, and races hissing along the shore. No thin, virile mist fizzing the windshield. Gorges rising, gray as china in the rain. Only this long roll of space where daylilies leap any breaks in the fences flooding down ditches, orange, against the many colors of green. Only the jingle and ring of morning crickets in the dew. Don't ask how long we've been here or why we stayed. 
you fall in love with the climate. Remember that. You fall in love with the climate. Everything else you can get, you take. <laughs> Florida since Archie came down to visit uh, my university 14 years ago. RP held cats in high regard and that said so much good about him apart from all the more evident good in his art. Uh, so when Peg asked me to read I wanted to find a poem with a kitty in it and I asked Peg about my choice and she said there was a poem that meant a lot to her. So I was glad to read this one. Uh, page 122, if you have your book. How pure a thing is joy for Peg. It's not the fact, it's the feeling. The cat jackknifed into sleep at your feet. The struck match flaring like a dancer. There's no beauty like your great human beauty. Well, keep it light, I tell myself, knowing there must be days when my kiss weighs a ton and even delight tires and prays when the last thing you want probably is another metaphor. And you're right. This marriage is a grace, flawed and outrageous. We lift each day from the smash up of the world before first light before a scratch of sun explodes in the torn shade, I waken, often, in your arms, blowing still your still-sleeping, night-searching self, listening to the steady whirring of the cat who thinks she's you. I had uh, one brief uh, time in my life where I had uh, more money than sense. I've never had a lot of sense. And um, I actually, I bought a dairy farm, which has just been no end of problems. And um, one time, leaving this dairy farm, uh, smelling like manure, I um, was driving along and I noticed that there was a, uh, a sign that said Hollandale which reminded me that there was this poem of uh, Roberts about Hollandale, and I really wasn't in a very good mood, and I drove over there, and uh, some jerk almost ran me over. I was looking for this um, uh, house where there was all this folk art that Robert had described in a poem, and I almost missed it, and I had to come back, and it was cold, and it was evening, and the folk art, I thought, was just about as dreadful as it could be. It was all this uh, statuary uh, some crazed guy had done. And, uh, and I got in my car and, and went back to Milwaukee, and I was pretty grumpy, and I think I called Robert the next day and sort of said, I, well, you know, I just don't get it. And it, later, when I reread the poem, I realized I actually did not really get it at all. And, um, um, and I love this poem, and it's called In the Gardens of Fabulous Desire. 
39 west of Hollandale, a sharp backward curve, and you miss it. The small house set in deep shade, lion and swan and tower rising from the burnt grass. No scene from childhood unless yours, like mine, was a long bad dream. When you kill your engine and you step down into the rutted gravel and pass finally under the dark pines, you'll feel the hair lift on your scalp a little, absent eyes watching from behind dimity curtains, brittle with dust and rain. Sorry, brittle with dust and sun. But the cheesemaker whose house this was Gray stucco studded with bits of bottle glass, pastel fiesta ware, fragments of mirror. He's dead now, his woman gone. Sons moved on to Sheboygan or Monroe. Nothing left but this house and its gardens of fabulous desire. Blonde snow white, breast swelling under her scalloped shell bodice. The Viking in his griffin-powered skiff, beached and listing, summer after summer, further into the glacial earth. It may come to you like the cry of children playing out of sight across a green ravine, or distant as the jumble of distant bees, hum of flies, gorged with musky blackberries beyond the milk house. What are our calloused hands, leaky bladders, and bad backs, but drunken song? Our ruined faces, but work. And you may think, if you could get the words to ring down right, like Neptune's wheel, noun verb, noun verb, <laughs> the clown under his pointed cap, the owl, the boy reading, noun verb, this whole calliope of crumbling dream would wheeze again, whirl and sing in the wild heat and stagger of these weeds. I'm Nicholas Kogan. I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'll be reading After After. I met Robert Dana in a curious way. He had met my father at Carleton College in Minnesota in the summer of 1968 at a conference on Buddhism and art. And my father died the following summer. And a decade later, after my father's death, I found a copy of some versions of Silence in my father's library. And I wrote to him in the summer of 1980 when I was starting my small press projects, and he was a very generous contributor, and we had a long correspondence, many calls. Always appreciated his passion, his vitality, and his 
skill as a teacher and a great friend. This particular piece also happens to have been uh, a favorite one of my mother's because it reminded her of walks up by Sleeping Bear that our family took shortly before my father died. After, after. Ragwort, stonecrop, bitterroot. Above tree line, the slow rock splitters show their tiny pink and yellow flowers. Give them a couple of centuries, they'll break this fell to meadow. Yesterday we broke our knees here, on the heave and pitch, upthrust and outcrop of stone. Today, on Fern and Odessa, it's chilly in the sun, but the walking's easier. Above us, wind roars through the spruce, bearing the heavy freight of the earth's breathing. Not our human world, where so much comes to not enough, and not like death. More like what comes after, after. Up the trail knotted hard behind me, I see my brother-in-law, his two small sons, my wife and her sister, and further back, and smaller still, their parents. Tiny figures, all of us, in some old Sung painting, strung out serenely down the sharp grade of a great gray-brown mountain, understanding little of what's being said by the billion-tongued aspen in the harsher language of the sun. Good evening. My name is John Rosecrantz. I'm from Fort Collins, Colorado, about 35 miles from Estes Park, which was one of uh, Robert's uh, uh, and Peg's dear places to, um, to relax and to write, perhaps, and to even paint uh, the last few years. I knew Robert Dana not as a professor a writer or editor. I, I wasn't among uh, most of, uh, of the group here. I didn't know Robert in a, in a dark blue blazer. I knew Robert in a dark blue Speedo. <laughs> Robert and I swam side by side in adjacent lanes at the Coralville City Pool for many, many years. I've known Robert since about 1989, uh, and we swam together for probably 12 to, to 15 years before I moved to Fort Collins, Colorado. But some of the nicest memories I have of Robert were those locker room talks that we would have after we would swim. 
talks about nearly everything, from cats to his garden to wine to a particular food to travel. Whatever we talked about, as most of you know and have mentioned, he was very passionate about. Uh, and it was such a, a pleasure to have those conversations with him. Peg, of course, was there every morning. And typically, we'd walk out of the locker room, and Peg would be there waiting for Robert. And she would say to us, you guys at it again? Uh, and, and, and yes, we were. Uh, the poem I'm going uh, to read tonight is called Selling the Earth and Everything on It. Let me put this poem into a little bit of context for you. I was on the Coralville Planning and Zoning Commission for a number of years, about 1988 uh, as well. And during that time, there was a lot of growth in the northern part of Coralville. And being on the Planning and Zoning Commission, a lot of these proposals came to us, and we would give our recommendations to the city council. Well, there was a development that I was a bit concerned about, so I asked some of the neighbors, including Robert, to come out to the city council meeting, take a look at the plans, and see what he thought, and perhaps give his opinion on it. Well, Robert attended that meeting. It was, I remember it was a cold November night, and this poem represents Robert's reflection on that city council meeting. <laughs> I was so glad I asked him to come out. <laughs> Selling the earth and everything on it. Last night at the town council meeting, what was it we were trying to say? One council member dozed. The other four were glassy-eyed, bored with arguments they disposed of months before. The air in the brand new, stale, utilitarian chamber smelled of done deals. And anyhow, what do citizens know? We appreciate your sincerity, one member says. Yes, you've brought a lot of emotion to the issue says another, but you don't understand the figures. The tongues of the grass, though they be without number, don't speak to them. They've had our figures, and the grass has no rights. Trees have no rights. The fat baseball cap developer with his shirt tail hanging out and suspect financing, who addresses the council members by first name makes that clear. If there's an alfalfa field there now or a stand of trees, anyone who buys from me will know that that's not going to be an alfalfa field or trees for very long. I bought this land to build on. So the deer in the meadow along the creek have no rights. The creek water no rights, nor the air. No rights for the hare or the hawk, red-headed woodpecker, woodpecker, white-throated sparrow, no rights for the fox. And the farmland disappears, and then the farmer, and then... 
is as Paul Valeri once wrote, politics is the art of keeping out of the process those who will be most affected by it. <laughs> then I guess you could say, we got politics. <laughs> and pretty good. By day, young brokers roar on the floor of the exchange. By night, to our north, suburbs metastasize. Circuit boards of a trivial and pointless future. As we file out, goodbye, goodbye. Across the frozen parking lot to our separate cars. Thank God it's dark and cold and winter's first hard snow is blowing. I just have one more comment. Um, in this poem, Robert quotes the French poet, writer, and philosopher Paul Valéry about being politic. I'd also like to quote Paul Valéry, not in reference to being politic, but in reference to Robert Dana. Paul Valéry wrote, a great man is one who leaves others at a loss after he is gone. A great man is one who leaves others at a loss after he is gone. They, that great man was my friend. He was your friend, your neighbor, your professor, your colleague, your father, and your husband. Thank you. Johnson, can you hear me? Okay. I'm married to Jerry, and we live in Des Moines, Iowa, and in Port Townsend. In the 80s, I was a student of our students <coughs> at Cornell. And after an introduction to Peg, the four of us became very good and longtime friends. Over the best 25 years, we've spent many weekends driving between Des Moines and Coralville and vice versa to have interesting conversations over gourmet dinners and many martinis. <laughs> <laughs> we've traveled together, shared our vacation retreats, and have kept in touch as friends do, sharing our lives with one another. Uh, Peg and RP have impacted ours immensely in unimaginable ways. RP was teacher, mentor, and stellar friend. He was mindful and witty with a wry sense of humor. His insight and generosity was a continuous touchstone. His words, heaven is here and not there, was and is a reminder of how to live each moment of our lives. The morning of the Red Admirals for D and L 
We saw them first last evening, two spiraling up a column of late sunlight, then tilting away from each other in a floating stagger through the early summer leaves, a jittery dipping, dropping, rising, one coming to rest a moment on the still warm roof of our fat pagoda lantern, the other on weathered deck rail, the tips of its long antenna beaded and bright, wings black, white dot and blue dot, and barred aslant with orange red, laid flat, then clicking shut to a dull gray sail, then opening again. Now it's morning. You've gone to work. The air gleams dry and clear, almost Greek, and a half dozen admirals sip from the lilac blossoms, still signaling their unsayable story. One lights on my shoulder as I hang the day's laundry on the line, shirts and drawers, dull socks, our flapping colors answering his. He's weightless, this migrant, a small wild scrap of grace, and I'm his resting post on the way to whatever far edge of creation breathes at the tips of his wings. Richard Terrell. If you haven't had a chance to look at the Cornell College uh, website, uh, make sure you do that. The tributes to R.P. I read them last night, and they were they were very moving, and they span many years and many generations, and remind me how he was able to relate so well to young people and to R.P. once, and to young people as those young people grew older, and, and a new generation of young people came on the scene. I knew R.P. mostly from the AWP National Conference, which we attended every year, and where we were always in a good mood, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> and uh, the poem I'm going to read, um, I'd like to read for those, the, all the people who couldn't make it, who would have liked to be here. And I think it, it occurred to me that had they been able to come, we would have had a dozen readers for each of the poems in this beautiful book. Spindrift. The wind heebie-jeebies. Where's the bread of silence that can be torn and eaten? As children, we mistook it for boredom and emptiness. Now it's disappeared in all directions, flat as time, a beaten tissue. What's more perfect than two pelicans staggered and soaring? Three pelicans. <laughs> then a fourth, trailing, sliding into the turning formation smoothly as a bead on a silk string. Bark, silence, play the dog. The brown Doberman retrieving his stick from the waves, 
dripping and frisking, wheeling and cantering, long-strided and loose-legged on the sand. Cage thought all noise music. Perhaps silence is the natural language of nothing. So many, sooner or later, come to the shore. I've walked with them morning and evening, the young and the old, tasting their loneliness, the waiting, the place they've come to not entirely familiar. Perhaps I no longer love poetry. So much of it's banal now, and mannered, and portentous, and stupid. Biz. Better to go in rags. <coughs> Under the palms, two brown old women sit smoking and gossiping, as they have every day, every year since their husbands died, as they will every year until they do. I'm trying to find a place here for that dirty, run-down, flat-roofed, one-story, concrete block house behind the tattoo parlor, now cleaned up and painted two gorgeous shades of French lavender with a new yellow door. And in front, crouched in morning shade, a dark yellow sports car. Well, don't just sit there. Help me. <laughs> time I saw, no, <laughs> not there. Oh, tell us your name. <laughs> My, yeah, I'm Keith Ratzlaff. I teach English at Central College in Pella, Iowa. Um, the first time I saw, what's the secret here? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, was I think at a at a Midwest MLA in the mid '80s, and he certainly didn't know me then. I knew who he was, and it was a it was a session where a graduate student from someplace was giving a paper on Melville. Um, RP was one of the responders and just took the guy apart. <laughs> um, I knew who he was, and, and he frightened the bejesus. <laughs> um, later, when I got, I don't even know if I was in Iowa at that point, but I was, I, uh, we bring poets to Pella, and I was scared to have him come see my students, because of course RP didn't suffer fools gladly, and I was pretty sure I was a fool, um, and that my students would look like fools. But those of you who have had him come to your classes, have him work with students, what a generous guy. What an amazingly generous guy. And uh, he ended up, after years of sending a book out, picking my book, my first book, for, for a prize in publication again. Those of you know how much that meant. And to have RP like my poems. <laughs> Woo, no fool, right? Oh. <laughs> anyway, I want to read a poem called Looking for Shark's Teeth. This has got everything. It's got Iowa. It's got Florida. 
it's got tough little rhetorical questions in it, right? And then it's got two words at the end that are just that are just perfect. Looking for shark's teeth. Back home, Iowa. Back home, 90 degree heat. The sun punishing the roses. The blooms of honey sweet blowtorched and blown. Cherry parfait melted like a bride's hanky gone limp in the rain. Here, the marvel of waking. Pour and tour of moonlight on the sea. It comes over me sometimes like a love of shadows. Or body surfing in my aging wreck of bones. Wave battered and drifted standing in the riptide. Heavy boots of water dragging at my legs. The sun has no ethic. The sea, no morality. What did you expect? A lecture on the politics of pleasure? A love litter written on air? Better to look for fossilized shark's teeth in the run back of low tide, glossy black points in the argument, or many colored sea glass along the tide line misted by a hundred thousand tumbles. Yards away, a five-year-old blonde stick of a boy shouts insults at the waves, slapping at them, holding out his arms, the water barely past his knees. Our day is what it is. Under the clouds, the streaming kites, among the red, yellow, green, and blue striped umbrellas, amid the busy little encampments of beach chairs. Sweet. Lucky. <laughs> to know Peg and RP through my husband Ben Miller who was a former student of RP's and has been a long time friend fellow traveler he'll be saying some words tomorrow uh, I first read this poem in July of 2007 RP had emailed it to Ben and I and I, at the time, was doing a poetry fellowship at an artist's colony in Vermont. And there was only wireless in one spot, and that was the fellows' lounge. And so they had a ping pong table and a foosball table and a big TV, and um, it was very crowded. And I went there with my laptop to check the email, and there was this email from RP. With a, with a poem attached, and I just sort of popped it open, and I started reading, and by the time I got to the end, I had tears coming down my face, and I, I sort of stared at my screen, and I thought, gosh, if anyone looks over here at me, they're going to think I've just gotten terrible news from home. And um, I was thinking about it the other day, and I realized that wasn't so far off base. I, it was, in a way, terribly beautiful news. Mm -hmm. 
Elegy for a Hometown. I'm done now with the dark houses of the East, my hometown. The book is closing on my generation. Skinner satin mills, long gone to producing brass and machine gun clips and milk bottle caps, are now themselves long gone. And the orchard of 10,000 apple trees that fed our insatiable boyish hungers, a wilderness of stumps and weeds. Even the rivers changed course, leaving Walpole's cove bleached and dry, where in winter, local farmers sawed thick blocks of ice, skidding them up a frozen ramp to waiting wagons, horses named Belle and Sophie stamping and steaming and shaking their harnesses until they rang. My Pollock neighbor's dairy farm is now a golf course, tees and greens and easy fairways. We once killed black snakes there through the long summers and forking up corners saved the sweet smelling windrowed hay from oncoming rain chaff stinging our sweat-drenched bodies like shirts of metal. So what's to say when a whole chunk of your life comes up missing? You say to yourself, well, there it is. Or, well, there it was, wasn't it? God's his own lawyer. After more than half a century, I walk the town with the only man who knows my name. Soon, I'll bury my own shadow and slip away like sunlight. Simplicity's what I'm best at. In the end, a small box of a house by the sea. No electricity. No running water, dirt floored, prayer, wind, and slapdash from the whereafter. supposed to read this poem and she could not be here. I was very happy to be asked by by Peg to uh, read in her place. So I'm not Ingrid Wint and the program is lying on that count. Who are you? Tom Winner. <laughs> <laughs> I need help. Thank you. <laughs> is, is this part working as well as can be expected to work? Um, the largeness and the spirit just fills the room, and everybody, I think, has helped build that, and it so is our peace spirit. He wrote so many kinds of poems, like the old poets did. Excuse me, could you speak louder or move the microphone? 
Okay, I'll try. This poem is um, called 3-10 July 2009, written last summer. The sun's effulgence like light from a dark diamond. Clouds so low we breathe them. The brindled meadow, dapple of shadows, stipple and ripple of waters. The slow creeks, bank full rivers. The muddy flow and go of it all. Is the sacred ever silent? Or does it babble and hum and whistle continually, invisibly, the tongues of the leaves wagging, wash of wind through the grass, a young woman wearing it on a hot day as a long flowing dress made of something, just this sight of air. What do I wish or wish for? At 80, and holding a short string strummed to a thread by cancer, short fuse, an entirely different story or the same story? How would I know? It is all so obvious in its secrecy. 310, the afternoon sunk to uncharacteristic stillness. Below the burning bush, the silk of tent spiders melts away. Is it better to be the teller of the tale or the subject of the story, all narratives being false, the darkness dancing away beneath our feet? crowd it's good to see the from up here I can see all of you and it's really a wonderful presence I'm so honored to be here I'm Denise Lowe from Lawrence Kansas um, I met RP in that apartment in Wichita 1982 um, G Barnes said there's this guy in town you just have to meet and I was in Wichita on business I'm from Emporia originally and uh, we went down to meet him, and he's been uh, a great teacher ever since. I also, in addition to as a swimmer and uh, overnight flighter of oysters to Iowa, um, <laughs> AWP dinner manager, martini in, in, uh, intaker. <laughs> I tried to think of something elegant because he was an elegant man. But I knew most I, as a son-in-law because his Peg's parents live in Lawrence, and uh, it's, it seemed that he did that as carefully with as much care and grace as everything else in his life. Um, he was poet laureate of Iowa, and I was poet laureate of Kansas. And in that role, one time I went to a Kansas Arts Commission awards dinner, and my name on the program as Poet Laureate was there to give the invocation. 
<laughs> I did some quick thinking and pulled some poems out of my purse that I had not planned on reading. But I think, I came to think of that, and, and tonight I think of that as the, we are invoking the spirit of RP. Uh, we are uh, not only celebrating how well he lived, but how well he continues in what is this uh, mystery that is, uh, we are sharing tonight. This poem, Lines Written Below Eagle Cliff, begins with uh, a word, Shekinah, which is a uh, Hebrew word for the female presence, dwelling place of uh, the infinite. And this is then, Lines Written Below Eagle Cliff, Shekinahs of dusk light slanting the deep canyons. And later, Scratches jackstrawed in flat red sandstone, mor morphological love notes, or gibberish, or accidents of geology we press our sweet meanings on, inventing order and law. The light like an unfolded fan. In the dry meadows of the moraine, no elk herd, no coyote, only a magpie strutting its spit and polish, black helmet, white waistcoat and epaulets, jacket, iridescent gun metal, blue-green, its tail a long saber. A minor officer in the great operetta, as we all are. And now a window jockey arrives, to repair a fractured pane in the dining room window. A star crack, he says. If only it were that easy. Beyond the new glass this morning, the great white jaws of the Rockies shine. Part of some cosmic crapshoot. Read them and weep, buddy, we'd say when the dice went bad. But I'm still rolling toward the thinnest air, toward the rarest edge. I still want to give the gods some lip. <laughs> the evening because I can't come on <laughs> <laughs> Thank you uh, all of you and I think maybe we should end with a standing ovation for Robert Dana.